Hello, and welcome to the Digital Health Leaders Podcast, where we bring the best of the best in digital health leadership to you. I'm Russ Branzell, President and CEO of the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, or CHIME, and the host of this podcast. These are truly unprecedented times for our industry and our healthcare leaders. These leaders are doing everything they can to support our frontline caregivers and guide their organizations through some of the most tumultuous times in modern history. Today, we have one of those special leaders with us. Well, what a privilege we have today. We've got a wonderful digital health leader with us today, an amazing leader in her own right, a role model for so many in the industry that she not only professionally deals with, but personally coaches and spends a lot of time with. She is truly a caring human being that cares about the well-being of others, especially our colleagues in our industry right now. She was elected to the Chime Board of Trustees last year and serves on numerous committees and is part of our overall education faculty as well. Uh, you'll hear some more of her story coming up soon, and she truly is a, a wonderful person to spend every day with. She's one of those people that if you just spend a few minutes with her, you can't help but smile and have a little bit better attitude. She has that influence on so many. So we're absolutely pleased to have Sarah Richardson, the VP of Change Leadership in IT at Optum with us today. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you, Russ. Well, first and foremost, we tried, especially during these interesting times, to ask that question we ask everybody, how are you doing? How's your family doing? How are your colleagues doing at Optum during this uh, during these trying times? I love the question because it feels like it should be an easy answer and everyone says, well, I'm coping, etc. And quite honestly, I've shared with so many people that it's okay to be okay and to not have guilt associated with that and to use whatever fortunate space you may happen to be in to pay it forward and help take care or have a lens on what others may be dealing with and feeling and seeing in any given moment, Russ. So my family is doing fantastic. My organization is doing fantastic, not without hardships and ways of figuring things out, but often in life you find yourself aligned in a space that whether you got lucky or you got smart or different planets, you know, found themselves together in the, in the universe that you are doing well. And then that responsibility is to make sure that you can help others do that as well. I love your, your spirit and your attitude around this because you truly believe you're a part of a bigger community that has to take care of each other. And, and I love that about our, I, I, I don't know what the right word is. It's not just a fraternal order. It's this group of people that generally and truly compassionately care about each other. And you're a huge part of that. You, we have a uh, choice in where, in what you do for a living. You have a choice in this, the people you know, you have a choice in the associations you become a part of. It's, it's no mistake that if you're in healthcare and you're a part of CHIME and you are a part of these organizations that allow you to constantly be improving the welfare of others around you, then you're associating with the people who have those same beliefs and values. And that has an exponential effect, both in your work environment at home, but also in the industry that we serve. Well, on that note, let's talk a little bit about Sarah. So there's many things I know about you. I'll only embarrass you a few times during this podcast because I maybe know too much. But first and foremost, let's talk about your title. Because most people would look at this and go, Optum, that's a supply company. Some use the word vendor. I hate that word. But They'll say, oh, that's a vendor company. Oh, why in the world would they, you know, she's on the provider side. Explain to us a little bit about your role uh, and the complexity of it and, and why it's such an integral part of what Optum's doing. 
Of course, thank you for the question because people will say, oh, you work for Optum, you must know so-and-so. And the first thing I say is that Optum has over 180,000 team members involved because to your point, Russ, <laughs> there is Optum Care uh, and Optum Health, which is where we have delivery mechanism of primary and specialty care. There's Optum Rx, which is our pharmacy benefits manager. There's Optum 360, there's Optum Insights, and the list goes on and on. There are so many verticals within Optum. And of course, Optum being a part of UHG as the parent company, even as being part of UHG and Optum, there's 325,000 people. So you can imagine, yeah, the United Healthcare piece in there, where, where all these different ecosystems under this one guiding organization. And I'm super fortunate, A, I love big corporations. I've realized that throughout my 27 years in IT that I do best in big organizations. And that's because I love the navigation of what that means and how you, how you move through and get things done and, and create lasting change for lack of anything else to think about. And I've been on the journey of being the programmer or the engineer and then moving into the CIO role and continuing to move through an organization. And I reached a space where with Optum Care, we are quintupling in size by 2030. I mean, the speed at which we are growing is, is exponential, truly. And I'm fortunate enough to work with leaders who are like, you have such a knack for specific areas, culture, communication, development, coaching, bringing people together, creating high-performing teams that have lower turnover but higher results. What would it look like for you to do that for, for IT, for Optum Care? And about 18 months ago, I was able to move from a market CIO role, which in various corporations had done for about 10 years, and I loved. But I said, wow, it would look like change leadership. And the reason I chose leadership over management, because we all understand ProSci and Cotter and ITIL, which is planning and budgeting and staffing and problem solving, all important things for us. When you think about change leadership, you are truly articulating a vision of the future. You align team members, you motivate and inspire people. And the larger the change, the more leadership that's required. So we tried all these different parts on, they are working and I will tell you they're incredibly iterative because as our organization grows and morphs and has challenges such as what's been presented with COVID-19, we too have to quickly adapt and change to meet the needs of our team members. And then of course, the clinicians and patients that they support and serve. You know, it's so interesting about this is how different our world is um, compared to even a few years ago where there was fairly traditionally well-defined, this is what an acute CIO looks like, this is what an ambulatory CIO looks like. And now it really is what we've always talked about, which is eventually it will just get to HIT leaders or what we call today digital health leaders. And they're gonna look different in so many different places in so many different ways. And I think your organization very much is a great example of that and it's big and it's complex and it, for some people it's really hard to get their head around you know so, there are go oh go ahead no, i no, think no. like when, by saying that i think about there there are days when i may spend a portion of it just finding the person who might have the answer that's applicable to enough of the organization for us to make a decision at that point and that that wow. sounds kind of crazy for some and yet what I love about my company today, there are no shortage of smart people looking to do the right thing. And it's when you find five people doing the right thing in different parts of the organization, looking for those synergies allows us to be that much better. So like so many other great leaders in healthcare, 
you didn't get your start in healthcare. You were in other fields and other parts of, of the uh, economy. Tell us a little bit about some of the other roles you did and how those have helped you transition into healthcare. Sure. I, my bachelor's degree is in hospitality administration from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And my goal always was to travel the world and work in the hospitality field. At 18, I think maybe I was 17 when I made the decision to go to UNLV, I could think of nothing better than traveling the world and opening hotels and, and being a part of those experiences. And I graduated, this dates me, but I don't ever not share actually my age and my experience, but I graduated in 1996 from college when Las Vegas was the center of the I think, um, universe for travel and tourism. Every year, a new hotel was opening, not just like a hotel, like a mega resort was opening and thematically approaching, should we make Las Vegas a place for families? Should we make it a place for specific types of entertainment? And I got in the space of seven years opened or was part of a massive like, um, addition to four separate casinos. It was MGM, Stratosphere, The Rio, and New York, New York. And I'm like 22 years old when I go into management in these places, but I started working there when I was 19. And so my first real job um, outside of working like at the mall or something like that was MGM. So I started my career while I'm in school working for the largest hotel casino in the world. So I never believed anything else beyond that was going to be as hard because how could it be bigger or harder than the biggest in the world? And then eventually morphed even into working for an airline that was a startup airline between um, Hera, Harris and the Rio at the time, National Airlines. It went bankrupt in uh, early 2000. That was a huge risk. And at that age, I literally just picked up the phone and called one of my colleagues and said, airline's going bankrupt. I need a job. And then honestly, that's how I ended up in healthcare. But it was so transferable because I had this huge hospitality background. I had all this tourism experience, understanding about clientele. And running a hospital in a hotel from a facilities perspective is incredibly similar. And because I'd always been in IT as well, I literally walked into the county hospital with a hospitality background, knowing how to program and engineer um, telecom and networking systems. So I found a home in healthcare doing the things I'd always done. And they've always been complementary to one another throughout the years that I have spent now almost 20 in healthcare. Wow. Wow. So small fact, I actually applied to the same program you did at UNLV for their hospitality degree. The difference is you got accepted and I didn't. So yeah, it was a few years earlier though in that program. So, um, Let's talk a little bit again. You you br you briefly hit on this. This is this it, it it absolutely is something I love teaching about and just got done teaching some of this at Columbia recently. This concept and difference between change leadership and change management, and in particular, we talk about in our 3.0 um, leadership model. We often talk about this is a huge differentiator for the next generation transformational leaders, the ability to lead change. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts on this and your philosophy on it, because it is your job. It is, and what I, I love most about it is there, it, it truly is a bit of art and a bit of science. So in order to understand how to lead change from, I always fascinated, people call them soft skills. I'm like, there's anything, these are, I really wish we would call them hard skills, the ability to to negotiate, to influence, to be able to understand how to get buy-in, 
how to navigate situations that we've never seen before. That comes with a level of not just maturity, but the willingness to continuously grow and learn yourself and, and, and being able to change the things that you may have once historically held as truths. You do though need the science behind change management, whatever methodology, whatever the way that, that, that people are understanding how things are happening to them, how to, how to get people to wanna to pay for programs like this, because the first thing to usually go is something around training and development of your teams. And the reason that I have such a passion for it, Russ, is that we will constantly be reinvented if we don't do it ourselves, whether it's due to an uptick or a downturn in the, in the, in the economy. You, you've seen yourself like do, there's years where companies do incredibly well and we all reap the benefits of that. And you saw in 2000, well in 2000 with the dot-com bubble, you saw 2008 with the great you know, the recession that we had in terms of, of housing and, and other financial sectors. And then now with the pandemic, every eight to 10 years, something significantly is happening and you either get to be part of the group or the person or the peoples that guide what that looks like or it happens to you. And I don't know anybody who likes to have things happen to them. So if you wanna be a truly effective change leader, you have to be part of that change and part of the outcome of whatever is occurring in any scenario that you're facing. So, so when you're working on this concept of helping people through change, which is such a, you said it so well, there's an art and there's a science to it, which very much is not different than helping people just through life. How does this help impact the overall team if, if a leader takes that approach? Too often what we find about leaders is they have a lack of the ability to be truly humble. And we talk about that humility factor and I always go back to, I love Jim Collins, good to great book. He talks about level five leadership and the ability to be truly humble and have a mix of the ability to know what you're good at, know what you're not good at, and laud those that are doing things well. So if things are going poorly in your organization, you're looking in the mirror and you're like, what can I do better? And if things are going amazingly well, you're standing at the balcony shouting out all the praises of the people who helped you achieve that in an organization. So the other, the other piece of that is great leaders are not famous. Great leaders are often unknown and you do that by hiring amazing people being responsible for what happens in your organization and constantly looking for the feedback from others all around you what could i be doing better what could i be doing differently what do you think about this perspective and simply listening to what people are telling you so curiosity and that continuous learning that humility factor when people see their leaders be human, when they see them care about the aspects of what happens outside of just delivering results, doesn't mean those things aren't important. It means that they're as important as the other aspects that allow someone to show up whole and do their very best work every single day. I feel like that's like a, an engineering effect that happens with yourself every single day, with the people around you every single day, because no two days are ever going to truly be the same. Today's episode of the Digital Health Leaders Podcast was brought to you by our segment supporter, LK, your healthcare data plumbers. Learn more about LK at ELLKAY.com. 
Wow. I, I, I love that philosophy. And, and I heard somebody recently say, you knew the people that had a team, they were all together because they're actually surviving and thriving through this period of time. And the ones that necessarily weren't a great team, they're struggling even today during this time. So I love that concept of the team. That's wonderful. Now, one thing I do know about you very well is uh, you are a definitely a passionate person for people development, um, all people, and you love to get involved in people's lives from a mentorship and really guiding and directing them. You've talked about that in our boot camp classes and programs and others out there. I'd love to hear a little bit about your philosophy on people development and, and mentorship. I was super fortunate in that the very first, you know, quote unquote, I say my real job that I had in working at MGM, I had a boss who to this day will forever be the, the best boss I ever had. And I remember I had a boss one time got really offended. Well, what could I do to be better than her? I'm like, don't worry, try not to be better than her just by simply, you know, showing up kind of every day. But she always said your number one responsibility will be to use everything that you learned to help other people be successful. That's true at home. That's true at work. That's true in everything you will ever do. And it stuck with me. And I would watch her. You know, she had like 65 people working under her. And yeah, she had supervisors and all those structures. She knew everybody's name. She knew everybody's family. She knew what you wanted to do next. She knew what made you tick. She knew when to give you a stretch assignment. She knew when to be harsh. She knew when to be kind. It was like this moment of like, and it, she made it look easy. And yet she also worked the hardest, had her own family, had other things happen in her life that she could have checked out or made a decision not to show up the way that she did every day. And I, I just watched her. And we often learn from bosses that aren't great. I'm sure we have all those different things we've learned what not to do. When you learn what to do right from the beginning, it sticks. And I always thought about the fact that if I do nothing else right in my career, I want to be like her. I want to care to the level that we didn't show up to, to do the work. We showed up because in most cases, we wanted to make her proud of what we did every day. And I was also raised that way. So it, it's helpful that I came from a home that was very similar. So when all your values align at a young age, you're pretty fortunate. I think that's the most important piece is you have to know what motivates people. What do they care about? Why are they showing up? You have to know if they have sick kids or, or parents or, gosh, in today's world, how many dogs, the cat's going to run through the, the session. Like, what are they facing? Because when you intrinsically care about someone at the human level, you'd be amazed at what they can show up and do every day, not simply because they want to be, make you proud of them, but because they have a vested interest in what's happening and the effect that they have on that outcome. Wow. Well, one of the things you also are is a lifelong learner. And, and, you, and I know I've watched you tout this to our young students in, in our boot camp programs and other things that are out there. You know, people are always curious. They, we always get asked at boot camp, what are you reading now? What are you learning now? What, more, more of a macro level question. What are you focusing on now on your own self-development? And what do you think you need to learn? So I'm laughing and you can't see me because my husband, he's the same way, he's a lifelong learner, but he literally said after I had wrapped up, uh, I recently got my level two coaching cert through ICF. He goes, you're going to take a break for a while, right? I'm like, sure. That break lasted three weeks. <laughs> I, have, I have continuously either gone to school, like for degrees and certifications and you name it, and also looked for um, 
ways to constantly be growing as a professional, like within leadership, within my own healthcare or IT domains. I took a bit of a different turn this round and I signed up through the um, through NASM, National Association of Sports Medicine, to get four different certifications from certified personal trainer, behavior specialist, weight life coach, and nutrition expert. And the reason I did that, Russ, is that Dan and I collectively are like 96 years old. So we're, you know, we're getting older. We have become more aware of all the factors that caused you to leave a healthy life during the pandemic. We're, we usually travel 60% of the time. We're not on the road. We're home making our own meals. We've got a Peloton. We're very competitive with one another about miles ridden and hours ridden and all this kind of fun stuff. Um, we, have, we do weight training. We're, we're very healthy in all the things we do. But that took a back seat last two or three years because we were gone. We were in airports, we're in hotels, we were never home. Such a hyper focus now on the, the complete wellness associated with who we are, but also how we use that to help others because of our coaching practices and, and the communities we serve within our own companies. So now I'm getting these certifications from a literally a health and wellness perspective to add to I think my own continuous learning but the ability to weave those into the conversations we have with people, because if you look at someone holistically, uh, diet, exercise, sleep, heck, water intake, those are all parts of a person being complete. And why not add that, that piece that was missing out of the curiosity component as well? So I'm not gonna become your certified personal trainer, yet I'll have enough knowledge to make sure that I'm making the right choices for myself. And I could, give you advice because I would be quote unquote certified to do so, but it's really about how do we constantly build the world around us that we like to create and provide for others. Wow. So combined 96, I didn't realize Dan was 70. Huh? Interesting. Yeah. I think that's the number I'm terrible. I always call it IT math. That's what my CFO used to make fun of me. He's like, that's IT math. I'm like, well, it's an estimation. So I'm like, well, I think it is 90. I'm 46. He's 54. I think we're actually a hundred years old. <laughs> we are. We're a hundred well, as of last week. So there you have it. Uh, I was trying to make you a little younger than that's him, but okay. uh, a lot younger than him. So I'm, I'm going to ask more of a kind of a serious question because, um, you, you, you definitely are a great role model, and, and I mean for everybody in the world, but um, when I look at people like yourself and the person that's helping us today on this podcast who makes us look so good, Amy, profit from our team, and I look, how do I want my daughter to grow up? I want her to grow up to be a strong, confident, wonderful leader like you and like Amy and like so many others I get to experience in our industry. Um, but that's that's not always the case. There's not always the opportunities, and, and we have this. Um, we know that, that the industry has been lopsided for years um, in gender, and you know we're glad that we're starting to see at least comp equity and some other things come about. But uh, how how do we? Uh, maybe it's the wrong term, but I'll say it. Anyway. How do we empower and accelerate and give more opportunities for for great leaders, specifically females? to excel in the industry. You make the, <laughs> interesting, it's like not a rehearsed answer. You have to take away the need for anybody who's not already in that space to have to fight for it so hard. And I think about the level of independence that I, I have even in my own life, and I'm sure many other female leaders would tell you this, that we get used to doing things ourselves. We're having to, to fight for things, so we rely on ourselves the most. Take away that constant need to have to fight for everything. Like, it doesn't mean that anything should be entitled or easy, 
but it certainly shouldn't be a constant battle to have to prove that you are capable of doing some of the same things. So when I hire people, I hire people based on their capability and I pay them based on their capability. And I work for a company who does that as well. So there's not this discrepancy in why is somebody making 20% more just because they perhaps are, are, are a man as an example. And I really work hard, Russ, and I'm, I see Chime doing this in other organizations <clears throat> of taking away those labels, taking away of, well, she's a mom or he's a single parent, or this person has this going on. Like, look at look at people for who they really are and appreciate their culture. So I'm a sixth generation Californian and I, I came back to California four and a half years ago after being gone for a long period of time. And what I love most about this state is that there are there's so much of everybody. And I say that meaning that if you look if you look at the I think the census of California, 40 plus million people, I'm a minority and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the fact that we have such a huge mixture of Latino, of, of Asian, of African-American, of Indian cultures all together. Um, you, you don't look at it. You don't look at the, I think the composite of like, who's different. You're always looking for the sameness because it's there. But if, if we're going to always create a way for people to feel like they belong, they have to look up and see themselves. And so being thoughtful about really understanding the motivations of what allows people to move up in organizations. Um, culturally, it's not always accepted for, for certain women, as an example, to be more successful than their husbands. And understanding that about someone and, and appreciating where they come from, um, but don't have to fight so hard. I think it would really be that piece. Like, I have a wonderful husband who is super participatory, participatory in our lives, but I always joke like he's also my second husband because the first one didn't quite get what that equation meant. <laughs> that you're supposed to share responsibilities of what things look like. And there's always two sides to a, to a story, of course, but we share the responsibility of all the things that we have to do. And yet he makes fun of me because I'll still be the one to like, you know, carry heavy stuff or take out the garbage or do all these other things. He's like, you know, I can help you with that. And after seven years together, I still look at him like, I know, but I'm used to doing it for myself. Wow. Well, speaking of fighting for things, it, you know, funny story, you know, that you may or may not have actually almost got the CEO and president of China in a fistfight in a bar one time. Actually, it wasn't even a bar, it was a restaurant, because you are an avid 49ers fan, is this correct? It is. In fact, my, my Twitter says that I love my husband and the 49ers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who were they playing that night? Was it Green Bay? They were playing Green Bay for the for the championship game leading into the playoffs. Yes. Yeah, and I walked in, and and good Sarah was 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 rooting for her team strongly, and the guy next to her was not appreciating it. And and uh, at one point, and then I realized, what am I doing? Sarah could take him anyway, so it didn't matter. So <laughs> now it was all great. It was it's it's just fun to spend time with you and and get to do those things. Let's talk a little bit about the future for a second, because um, you know the. Healthcare probably is in this crazy turmoil right now, but from an IT perspective, it's kind of at the top of its game. I mean, IT really has helped um, healthcare through this period of, of really rough um, perspective. So when you kind of look out the future, that we talk so much about all the next generation of technologies and things that can make a difference in healthcare and really kind of change the world per se, um, this kind of fourth generation stuff. You know, how do you look at this from, you know, whether you're representing Optum or, or from a leader in Optum, as you look at things that might radically change the way we deliver care and what the big part technology will play in that? 
Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that too, because <clears throat> one of the upcoming topics for, for CIO Bootcamp that Tressa Springman and I are teaching is really like what we've learned from COVID, what it means going forward. Um, I think of a couple different aspects. And this is, of course, my opinion, period. So do what you will with it. We have to be able to work smaller with a greater focus on the things that we deliver well. So you, you really can't do everything. But what are the things that your organization needs most? And that's very specific to each organization. So take, for example, something like uh, interoperability and analytics in that space. And is your organization so big that you create it as a service, really subscribe to what you need from, from these teams versus having it holistically within your own market or your own facility? And you think about what happens when you need greater flexibility out of your EMR and practice management solutions. And I tell you that knowing that we have 53 of them in our ecosystem. So there are the days when I thought, wow, I used to only have Meditech to worry about, or I only had to have Cerner in my world. Well, now I've got so many of them and really navigating the ability for clinicians to have seamless workflows or to bring the upgrades or changes or the adding components that help them with quality and risk and diagnosis more effectively. How do you create the, the programs and the products that plug into all of those things in a way that is not disruptive to what it is we're asking our clinicians to be able to, to provide? And if you are not aligned with your critical business needs, you're not going to foundationally be able to grow and pivot to the things that are, that are coming forward at any given time. And so I think of the importance of clinical expertise, how you embed your technology, where you place your consumer and clinician experience, and then truly crafting delivery models, Russ, based on the technologies that allow you to have, whether it's condition-centric management or local care ecosystems and the wraparounds that allow that to happen. Regardless of how big your company is or how small, healthcare will always be local. There's always a cultural aspect to it. And there's always a level of either affordability or usability from the technologies you put in place. So you have to know what's going to grow your business and serve your, your clientele, patients and physicians in our cases, more than just having the latest thing that you think you're supposed to have. It takes an absolute knowledge and understanding of everything within your healthcare system and alignment with your leadership teams to be incredibly responsible about delivering those solutions. So one last great pearl of wisdom, one great thought, something out of Sarah Richardson that people will remember you by, the, the thing that kind of drives you, what is that one great thought? So my mother passed away in March of this year and not from COVID, so I always get that question. But one of the last conversations that she and I had was me thanking her for teaching me to be kind and to always think about what the other person may be going through. And she said, never mistake kindness with weakness. It is something that will carry you through your entire life. And I've told you your entire life and remember this for the rest of it, that be kind because everybody is going through something. And that's what I always want you to remember that I thought was most important. And I will promise you, Russ, my entire life has always been about just being nice and figuring things out and not because I didn't have the grit and the grace to pull it through on the other side.
Wow. Well, I'll tell you a little story. We were driving through Kentucky last year, and there's a community in central nowhere, Kentucky, that every single house has a sign in their front yard that just says, be kind. Mm -hmm. Every single house. And that was the community motto that, and it, when we went into a store, the nicest human beings I've ever met. I told my wife, I want to move here. This place is amazing. I love that lesson in life. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I'm going to tap into one last because if I didn't, I, I would regret it forever because you and I have a common, I don't know, passion is not the right word. Mm, just a thing that we just both love. How about that? And that's Buffett music. Yes. Jimmy Buffett music. And so I thought I'd been to a lot of Buffett concerts. You've been to a lot more Buffett concerts than I have. So one of those last little bits of information everybody needs to know about you. What is your favorite Buffett song? You can only listen to one. It would be... Changes in latitudes, changes in attitudes. Oh, that is so close. That's my number two. My number one is One Particular Harbor. Okay, that was my tie. Just for the record, it was One Particular <laughs> Harbor. That's why it took me a second to answer. It's one of those two. So maybe you get one, I get the other, and we'll just make sure we get to borrow each other's only song into perpetuity. Oh, that is perfect. Love it. Sarah, you are an awesome, awesome person. You're a hero and a mentor to so many. Thanks for all you do for Chime, for your community, for your organization. But thanks for just being a great, great human being for all of us to follow. Likewise. Thank you, Russ. Well, we'd also like to thank all of you for joining us on today's episode of the Digital Health Leaders Podcast. As always, you can visit us on our website at chimecentral.org forward slash media or on Apple or Spotify for this and any of our podcasts. Please take care, stay home. If you don't, wear your mask. Be safe and God bless. Today's segment of the Digital Health Leaders Podcast was brought to you by our supporter, LK.